Have you had a good morning so far? Maybe your morning has been surreal. Perhaps for the first time in weeks, the kids were compliant. They dressed themselves appropriately for church. They went down to the kitchen and cooked themselves breakfast. Maybe even cooking breakfast for you. And you went down and saw laid out before you waffles and pancakes and eggs. And you said, hallelujah, what a day it is. And then they finished getting ready and stood by the front door early before it was time to leave, reading their Bibles in a devotional time and praying for the Friday morning service. Maybe you just lived out something from a cheesy Christian television show and you couldn't be happier. It was a great morning. But for many of us, our morning didn't quite go that way, did it? You feel perhaps like today is just one of those days. You worked late last night, you're tired, there was some family conflict this morning. You couldn't even get out of the church parking lot without fighting and arguing with your spouse. It's one of those days you just try to survive so you can wake up tomorrow morning and hit the reset button. You know, we all have good days, we all have bad days. You know, days we look forward to and days we dread. And just yesterday we celebrated our daughter's fifth birthday and it was a good day. She has a birthday party tomorrow, and that'll be a good day filled with cupcakes and sugar and cupcakes and sugar and more cupcakes. It's going to be a good day because when you're five years old, there's nothing better. Or when you're the senior pastor of the church, there's nothing better than cupcakes and sugar. It's going to be a good day. Well, friends, what's a good day for you? You know, if you're getting older and have lost track of gray hairs, then perhaps birthdays aren't at the top of your list of good days anymore. Well, take courage, friend. God also knows the number of every hair on your head that has fallen out. I promise. No, friends, today, today is a good day. We Christians call today Good Friday for a reason. It's because we believe that over 2,000 years ago, this weekend was the most important weekend in the history of the world. And if you're here with us and you're just catching us at the end of the gospel of Mark, I'm glad you're here. I praise God that in his sovereign grace, he brought you here as we look at the last days. Actually, in fact, the last minutes and seconds of Jesus Christ's life here on earth. And so if you have a Bible, uh, please turn with me to the gospel of Mark. It's the second book of the New Testament, about two-thirds the way through your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we'd love to give you one as a gift. So stop by our welcome table on the way out. We just want to give you one as a gift because we want everyone to have the very word of God with them to read and to study and to pray through throughout the week. If you don't have one now, we'll put it up on the screens and you'll see it in the bulletin for you to follow along. But please do pick one up as a gift on your way out. And we'll be in Mark chapter 15 today from verses 16 on the way down to verse 47. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage. It's a long passage. I want you to see uh, from a bird's eye view the entire story of the crucifixion. So let me start reading in verse 16, and then I'll end in verse 47. Let's read God's word. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace. That is the praetorium. 
and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So? You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves, saying, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. The sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those standing near heard this. They said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. I'll leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. 
Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, as we approach this most holy of texts, as we stare straight into the death of Christ, the Savior of the world, Father, would you melt our hearts before you? Father, would you cause us to see and savor this Jesus who died in our place? Father, would you draw us near to you now? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we'll see three things about this Good Friday, about this weekend 2,000 years ago. Three things that'll serve as the outline of our passage. The first is the horror of sin. We'll see the horror of our sin. And then second, we'll see that Jesus is our Savior. He's our Savior. And third, that Jesus is our substitute. So we'll start by seeing the horror of our sin, Jesus as our Savior, and Jesus as our substitute. So let's look first at the horror of our sin. In order for us to understand the good news of the gospel, we need to understand the depth of our depravity. And Mark is providing here a vivid picture of our depravity and sin. I mean, take a look at these soldiers here in the passage. I mean, look at verse 19. They struck Jesus on the head. They shoved the fake crown on him. They showed him no respect. They hit him over and over and over again. I mean, what we have here is a vivid picture of our opposition to God. In a spiritual sense, hasn't this, this been the case for you? I mean, those of us who are Christians, we know this has been the case, that we have repeatedly opposed God. I mean, the horror of our sin is so deep that we can speak the truth and still be blind to it, as these men were doing in the passage before us. I mean, we're barely aware of the worst sin in our lives. That's why it's so important for us as Christians to join a local church, to be involved with other members who watch each other's lives, who pray for one another, who rebuke each other in love. That's why it's important for us as Christians to hear the word of God preached regularly and to sit under the teaching of the Bible. That's why it's important for us to pray, to read God's word often and to examine our hearts. Because the Bible says this is a story of our sin. It's a story of all of us. When we've decided not to follow Jesus, we've decided to reject God. Not because of natural disasters, not because our circumstances are difficult. The Bible is clear that we were all made in the image and likeness of God. And yet there is something wrong with each of us. We've all rebelled and a picture of the ugliness of our sin is shown right here. As these men paid sarcastic homage to Jesus. They bowed in pretend prayer. They spit on him. They mocked him. No, all of us have done this in one way or another. Whether your outward actions have seemed good or not. James 2 illustrates sin. And he says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And yet in verse 10, James says that if one stumbles at merely one point in the law, that one is guilty of breaking the whole law. Just one point 
makes you guilty of the whole thing. It's not as if some have said that your life is like a chain and if you sin, it breaks just one point of it, but you still have a a good-looking chain that still remains. No, the problem isn't your action. The problem isn't really the sin. It's the fact that your sin is against a holy and perfect God. No, even one sin taints the whole thing. Because sin is a rejection of God's authority in our lives. And so we see in the soldiers mocking Jesus a sharp picture of what all sin is by its nature. A personal rejection of God. I think St. Augustine long ago illustrated this well. See, when he was a teenager, Augustine went out one day to an orchard to steal some pears. Now later on, after stealing the pears, he asked himself, he said, Why did I steal those pears? I mean, why did I go to this orchard to steal these pears? I wasn't hungry. I mean, I'd already eaten lunch. I wasn't hungry. I, I didn't need to eat. I wasn't in poverty. And then he said, well, I, I don't even like pears. I didn't steal them because I love pears, because I've been dreaming about pears, because I, I yearned to eat a pear. No, he reflected back and he said, the reason I stole the pears was because someone told me I couldn't. He said, I wouldn't be interested unless someone told me that they were forbidden. See, there is something at the core of our hearts that says, nobody can tell me how to live. No, I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. See, it's why we see a sign that says, no trespassing. And as we see that, that that makes us want to trespass, doesn't it? See, the sign that says, no fishing here, makes us want to get our fishing rod and go fishing right there. There's something within us that says, no, I want to do what I want to do. I don't want anyone else writing the rules for me. No, God says, apart from the Bible, apart from God, the Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses, dead in our sin and without hope in the world. Romans 3 says that there's none righteous. Romans 5 says that, like Adam, we are all born into sin and continue in sin. Romans 6 says that the wages of our sin is death and judgment. No, sin is not a thing we just kind of sweep under the rug. It's not a little this a little that. Oh no, sin is most fundamentally our acting like Satan instead of reflecting the glory of God. I mean, fudging on the truth, spinning things a little bit, ignoring God's word, elevating our reason above what he has said. These things are neither little struggles or small foibles. No, if it is sin, then that means it is satanic. When we sin, we are denying the most fundamental purpose for why we exist, which is to glorify God and to bear the imprint of his holiness. Now, our sin is telling the true king that we think we're the rightful king. It's telling God we don't need God, telling God that we want to be like God, just like Satan did, that we want to take the place of God to rule our lives our own way, under our own law. And God says that left alone in our sins, we have no hope. And yet when we continue reading the book of Romans, we see that in Romans 8 we get some good news. Right there in the first verses. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. Now friend, there is good news for us today. That there is a calm after the storm. That we're not left for dead. And that's the good news of Good Friday. And that brings us down to the second point. That we're dead in our sins. That there's horror in our sin. But... But Jesus is our Savior. 
It's the second point, second thing we see in this passage. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He went through this for us. First through some flogging or scourging, which was often enough to kill a person even before crucifixion. You'd be beaten with a whip that would have sharp bones attached at the end. And you'd be whipped repeatedly time and time again in preparation for crucifixion. Many would die through this beating. We see that Jesus was so exhausted from the flogging that he couldn't even carry his cross beam to the cross. It would have been about 40 kilometers in weight. You would carry it on the back of your neck. And we see Mark there with utter objectivity and with no trace of playing on the reader's emotions announces the crucifixion. This most cruel and horrifying punishment. Crucifixions were done on the most crowded roads where the most people can see and be moved with fear. Depending on the severity of the flogging beforehand, some victims remained alive on the cross for days. Since no major arteries were severed, death came not by blood loss, but by hypovolemic shock or asphyxia. You literally choked to death or had heart failure or maybe a combination of both. The crucifixion was a ghastly form of death, excruciatingly painful, prolonged, socially degrading. Birds and animals would often begin feasting on the victims before they died. The philosopher Horace describes them as feeding crows there on the cross. It's an unbelievable passage that comes to powerful light when you consider the irony that Mark is using. Mark and the other gospel writers writers, use irony here in the crucifixion to show the power of what was taking place. Now, irony expresses the meaning by using words that normally mean the opposite of what is being said. And the author Don Carson calls the crucifixion a place filled with irony after irony after irony to make a powerful point. And he lists four of them in his book, Scandalous, and I want to mention them now. The first irony here in the passage is that the man who is mocked as king is the king. Do you notice that as I read the passage today? The man who is mocked as king really is the king. I mean, the soldiers gathered around Jesus, they stripped him of his clothes, and they draped a purple robe on him. Purple dye was associated with royalty. It was only worn by emperors and kings. And they crushed down a crown of thorns, crowns as big as 15 to 20 centimeters long. They put it on his head. They put a staff in his hand and pretended that it was a scepter. And they were laughing and spitting on him and mocking by kneeling down and shouting out, Hail to the king of the Jews! And in doing so, their aim is to mock Jesus. They mean exactly the opposite. Not that this guy's the king. No, he's a pathetic criminal. And in their irony, they mock him. But Mark sees a deeper irony here. They're actually telling the truth. The man who is mocked as king really is the king. And not just the king of the Jews. He's actually even more than what they say. We see at the end of the book of Matthew in chapter 28 uh, that it says that Jesus has all authority over everyone, over everything. The man who is mocked as king really is the king. He sovereignly rules over all. Well, the second irony that Carson mentions is that the man who is utterly powerless 
is powerful. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. When we read these verses, the picture of Jesus here is of one who is weak. One who is powerless. He can't even manage to carry the crossbar on his shoulders. And then there on the cross he hangs in shame, utterly powerless. No hope, naked, soldiers standing guard. He's facing hostility from the crowds. He's even being crucified between two thieves. No fame, no friends, no following. No, even the onlookers mock this man. They see the sign, King of the Jews, and they hear his claims, you're going to destroy the temple. And they say, look at you. You're weak. You're not a savior. You're dying on a cross. But the readers of Mark know, and God knows, that Jesus' demonstration of power is displayed precisely in the weakness of the cross. I mean, you see, by staying on the cross here in abject powerlessness, Jesus will demonstrate his very power to save his people. And the man who appears utterly powerless is taking part in the most powerful act in the history of the world. His power manifests in his quiet and faithful submission to the will of the Father to die in the most humbling of ways. But friends, it is precisely by staying on the cross that Jesus will save himself and his people. The man who appears utterly powerless is most powerful. The third irony that Carson mentions is that the man who can't save himself saves others. And they say, well, he healed others, but he can't save himself. I mean, Jesus, if you're the Savior, then come down and save yourself. Show us that those nails aren't holding you there. But in a profound sense, if Jesus is to save others, he really can't save himself. And Jesus came to save his people from their sins. If Jesus had leapt off the cross, the mockers and other onlookers couldn't have believed in Jesus in the sense of salvation because he wouldn't have been sacrificed. He didn't save himself, not because of physical restriction, but because of moral imperative. He came to do his father's will. No, it wasn't the nails that kept him there. It was out of love for the Father and out of love for you to save others that he couldn't save himself. Well, the fourth irony is that the man who cries out in despair is the man who trusts in God. The man who cries out in despair is the man who trusts in God. We see here Jesus cry out a cry that was foretold in the Psalm 22 reading that Thunkachin read earlier. It's a psalm that shows emotion, but also profound trust in God. Many of you know the name William Cooper. He's a great, or was a great hymn writer in England. He went through long periods of clinical depression and suicidal thoughts. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, a poet, wrote a three-page poem entitled Cooper's Grave. She describes his great scholarship, hymnody, his personal piety, but she also alludes to the dark nights of the soul that he had. I mean, this guy was so depressed, so suicidal, he attempted to kill himself multiple times, and by God's grace, he just couldn't do it. He was a man depressed beyond imagination. And Browning writes a poem powerfully referring to Jesus' cry of desolation, and she writes, 
Once Emmanuel's orphan cry, this universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless, my God, I am forsaken. It went up from the Holy Spirit's lips amidst his lost creation, that of the lost, no son should use these words of desolation. You hear what Browning is saying. She's saying that Jesus cries this agonizing cry. My God, I am forsaken. So that for all eternity, forever, that William Cooper would not have to. That even in those moments of deep depression that he went through, doubtless feeling abandoned, Christ's cry ensures that for all eternity, Cooper will never cry the same cry. Jesus cries, my God, I am forsaken, friend, so that for all eternity, you and me, if we follow Jesus, we will never have to echo these words. Fellow Christian, those situations may seem hopeless. Maybe this is your first time in a church gathering for a long time, and you've been going through a a time of deep despair, a time of hopelessness, a time of depression, discouragement. Sometimes it's difficult just to get out of bed in the morning. Sometimes it's tough to fall asleep at night. Maybe you wake up throughout the night despondent over a divorce, a failed marriage, your financial situation. Maybe you just don't know what's wrong, but just can't find joy. No, friend, my prayer today, prayer every Friday, but my prayer today and all week long is that you would leave here today with this hope in your heart. That because Christ cried out these words in utter desolation and abandonment that you know for certain as a follower of Christ that you will never have to. That Jesus is the king of the world. That he is powerful. That he trusts God. And he cries out in despair so that his followers will never have to. Friend, as a Christian, you have a million reasons to celebrate on this Good Friday. That God showed his love for you by sending Jesus to the cross to save you. Jesus, God himself in the flesh, became a man, fully man and also fully God, and he gave his life for you. It was the only way to save you. Only way to save you because the value of this offering must be high enough to pay the penalty for your sin. And that's why only God himself could do it. You've sinned against a holy God, no amount of penance could forgive it. That's why the idea of purgatory is such an affront to God and his holiness, because no amount of suffering, no amount of cleansing, no amount of payment, no amount of good works could ultimately pay off the debt that we owe, because that debt would need to be paid for all eternity. And this God himself would take the punishment for us, and this God himself would take the price for us. And he did. Jesus came to be our Savior. He who knew no sin became sin for us, took upon the sin of humanity, takes upon himself all our sin, all of it, upon himself. Friends, this is good news. Friends, this is a good Friday. Jesus is our Savior, and in doing so, we see a third thing here in the passage, that Jesus is our substitute. Not only Jesus as our Savior, he's our substitute. That we see here God the Father is forsaken, God the Son, Jesus, Not in the sense of forgetting or ignoring or hating him. Rather, he's punishing the son. Treating him as if he were all the sin that he was bearing. 
And our sin is so terrible that we needed a substitute. Our tears, our regrets don't undo the sins that we've committed. We have no way of fellowship with a holy God unless, unless there was a substitute. There's a line from the movie The Shawshank Redemption that captures this well. Red, uh, an inmate played by Morgan Freeman, describes his friend Andy's escape that required him to crawl through a sewer line to escape out of prison uh, by saying these words. He crawled through a river of filth and came out clean on the other side. That gets it right, I think. There are times I see myself like Andy, although I'm not the one who crawled through the nasty river. Someone else did it before me and for me. My friends, at this point, the Hollywood script writers pretty closely echo what we read in Isaiah 53. That all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The one has gone before us and one has gone for us. We've all gone astray. We've discerned death. But the punishment we deserve was poured out on Jesus. It was what the great leader of the Reformation, Martin Luther, called the greatest exchange in all of human history. This is why Paul could write, He who did not spare his own son has given us all things. One Puritan meditated on it by saying, Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Cast off that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrender to hell's worst so that I might have heaven's best. Stripped that I might be clothed. Wounded that I might be healed. Thirsty that I might drink. Tormented that I might be comforted. Made ashamed that I might inherit glory. Entered darkness that I might have eternal life. Expired so that I might live forever. Something happened in that moment on the cross. Something legal. Something spiritual. Something eternal happened in that moment that Jesus traded places with us. He became our substitute, and our sin was imputed, reckoned, granted, put upon him, and he became cursed. Because see, here's what happens, friends. Our first father and first mother substituted themselves for God in a garden. And they said, we want to be God. And the world fell apart. But then God becomes a man and he goes to the cross and he substitutes himself for us. And he says, the wages of sin is death, but I shall die for you. Father, forgive them. And the most important question then is why? Why did the worst thing happen to the best person who ever lived? Well, it's out of the love of God for his glory and for his people. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's the gospel. That's the good news for Good Friday and every day. That he died to forgive you and to bring you to God. That Jesus' death on the cross removes the obstacles between us and God. No, he died the death we should have died and gives the gift that we cannot earn. 
And so we know God loves us not because of our health or wealth or comfort or convenience. No, we know God loves us because God gave us God. God gave us himself. God gave us his son and now the son gives us access to the father. God has given us salvation. Now friends, family, you are loved in a way that nobody could ever love you. Not with this perfect, unbroken, and unyielding love. Not only did Jesus die, not only was he buried, but we see that Jesus Christ rose from death. That he conquered sin, that he conquered death, and we're going to celebrate that on the beach on Sunday morning. Because our Savior reigns, he lives, he conquered death. He was our substitute for our sin. Friends, come to this living Christ today. Everyone can come. No matter what background you come from, no matter what race, no matter what you've done. I mean, you see there towards the end in verses 38 and 39, something remarkable. Beautiful verses that we can't just skim over this morning. You see there, the curtain was torn into two and the centurion professed Christ. This is remarkable. The temple had a great curtain. It was a a thick one. It was almost like a wall. And it came down before the Holy of Holies, separating where God's glory dwelled from the rest of the tabernacle. And only the holiest man, the high priest, from the holiest people, the Jews, on the holiest day here, Yom Kippur, with a blood sacrifice, could go back there one day of the year to atone for sins. Only the holy, only the most moral, the most pure, and only on one day, in one moment, could one go back there behind this thick curtain. And that whole time when he went back there, the people shook. They were nervous. They were scared that perhaps the high priest might die. And they prayed that he would come out alive. But you see here, the moment Jesus died, this incredibly thick curtain was ripped from top all the way to the bottom. When it was ripped, it was God's way of saying, Jesus is a sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. That the barrier is now gone. And just to show us that the barrier is gone, it's remarkable that Mark says it was a Roman centurion that sees Jesus as the Son of God. This is the very climax of the entire book, this verse. I mean, for the past year, we've been working up until this one confession. I mean, nobody has got it so far. No person up to this point has figured it out. I mean, we've seen Jesus teach seen remarkable sermons. We've seen him heal lepers. We've seen Jesus raise from the dead, miracle after miracle after miracle. We've seen him acknowledge that he is the Christ, that he is the King. And everyone is saying, who, who is this guy? Who is this man? No one gets it. The disciples are confused. They abandon Jesus. No one knows, and now he's killed, and no one's got a clue And yet the first man to get it, the first person to get it, is this guy. A Roman centurion. This guy proves that anyone can come to Jesus. I mean, look at who this guy is. He's not a Jew. He's not a disciple. He's spiritually dark. He doesn't know the law. He was a poor soldier who inflicted death for a living. I mean, this guy was an executioner. Probably a rough guy who literally would nail nails And to those being crucified, he would be the guy that would stand there and look eye to eye, watching these men die. He would guard the bodies so that no one could come and try to rescue the one dying. 
He had seen hundreds of people die, inflicting much of the torture himself. Yet he watched Jesus die. He heard his cry. And he opened up his heart. Some of you here might say, but Pastor Dave, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done in my life. You don't know what I've done this week. You don't know what I did last night. God could never forgive me. Friend, it doesn't matter what you've done. Look at the centurion. It doesn't matter if you've been camping out at the gates of hell for years. There's grace and mercy available for you. I mean, think on the three most prolific writers in the Bible, Moses, David, and Paul. These guys were all murderers. Moses murdered out of anger. David commits adultery with Uriah's wife. He sends a guy out to battle. He commits adultery with this guy's wife, and then he kills him. We see the apostle Paul was a murderer. He murdered Christians. He stood there when Stephen was being stoned to death. He gave hearty approval. He would literally go from house to house dragging Christians out to kill them. My friends, there's forgiveness and mercy found in Christ. The first thing all of us need to realize is that our biggest problem in our lives is not our circumstances. It's not someone else. It's not our spouse. It's not our friends. It's ourselves. G.K. Chesterton, a Christian author in the UK, long ago once was asked what the biggest problem in the world was. His answer published there in the London Times was, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Now isn't that true? Isn't that true of all of us? That the biggest problem in your life, the biggest problem in the world is you. It's your sinful heart. And you need a solution. And Jesus has become that solution for us. It's not something we can pay God back for. We can't try harder to do better. We must repent of our sin and believe in Jesus. And some say, well, well, Christianity, this Christian faith, is just too easy. All you need to do is tell God you're sorry to turn from your sin and believe that he'll save you. That's it? And he saves you? Well, friend, you know what? It, 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 it's not easy. It's hard because it requires humility. We come to God not with hands full of what we've done. Here's my life, God. Here's my performance. Here's my CV. Here are my good deeds and bad deeds. Please put them on a scale and weigh them for me. No, that's not how it works. God doesn't have good and bad people. He has perfect and imperfect. That's why Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Those are the only two categories. Perfect, and only one person fits that category, and his name is Jesus. And then we have imperfect and that's everyone else. That's you and that's me. And the key is to acknowledge that I'm a sinner, that I'm in that guilty category, that I'm there with everyone else. And if you're not a Christian, friend, Jesus' Jesus' death can bring you to life. He told us in the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we must repent of our sin and believe in Jesus. 
And this, this doesn't mean that we'll never sin again. It means that we're trusting Jesus to save us from our sin. My friend, if you've never done this, why would you not do this today? Why would you not turn to him with your life? As John Piper has said, there is only one person God treated worse than he deserved, and that was Jesus. And he did it all for us to bring us to God. This should melt your heart. Friend, this is the one you've been looking for in romance and work in life. This is it. The Savior. The Substitute. Now put your trust in Jesus today. It's a good day because it celebrates what is the most momentous weekend in the entire world. That God himself was treated like a criminal. That he was executed between criminals and mocked by a group of criminals. Friends, turn to the Savior King today, your Substitute and your Redeemer. Let us go before him now in prayer. Oh, Father, these words are too much for us today. That we don't deserve your great love for us. We don't deserve it. We fall short. We've rejected you. We've turned from you. We've run away from you. And yet we praise you that you did not leave us as orphans in this world, but have adopted us into your family as sons, as heirs with God, with you. Oh, Father, we pray that our hearts would be changed this morning. Father, we pray that those who don't know you would see the grace of God crashing down upon them now, that they would believe in you. Oh, Father, that as we leave this ballroom in a few minutes, oh, Father, would we be encouraged that Jesus is our Savior, that he is our substitute, that he has been raised from the dead, that he is alive and reigns now and forever. Oh, Father, that we have hope in despair, in discouragement, in despondency. Father, you are alive and you reign and we will be with you for all eternity, now and forevermore. Oh, Father, it is in Christ alone that we praise you and it is in the name of Christ alone that we pray these things. Amen.